Um, well, I am really thankful to have the opportunity to teach tonight. Um, I'm really excited to walk through this passage with you guys. Um, in the last couple of years, I've had the opportunity to teach literature um, to um, high school students, and I've really enjoyed that. Um, does anybody else besides me geek out over literature? Okay, cool. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm not super analytical, um, but I do like working through the structure of a story and like the elements of literature um, and just noting the various literary devices. And to that end, the Bible is literature. Um, first and foremost, it's God's word inspired that is given to us um, that reveals who he is. Um, but when you study, it's important to consider the aspects of literature because they help us get the right context so that we can interpret correctly, you know, like considering the genre and knowing, okay, is this imagery or is this literal? Um, is this something that I should look at as um, prescriptive, like this is a command, this is what I need to do, or is it more descriptive and I'm just going to draw some principles out of it? Um, so we're going to look at it kind of through a literature frame tonight. Um, as you know by now, because we've been walking through Exodus for a while, um, uh, I just lost my train of thought, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> Exodus, um, it is law. Um, it's in that section of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the book of Moses, um, but it's also historical narrative. Um, so for the original readers, um, which would have been Israel, um, and that's something that we always want to ask ourselves whenever we're studying is, what did this mean to the original hearers? Um, it was their history of God establishing his relationship with them and making covenants with them. Um, so let's just start off by looking at the setting, which is one of those um, literary elements. Um, so at this point in the story, they're in the wilderness at Sinai after God had rescued them from Egypt. Um, currently, Moses is up on the mountain um, receiving God's law. Um, they had already heard from Moses um, the Ten Commandments and parts of the law that God had given, and they had confirmed covenant with God. They all said as a people, we will obey what your law says. Um, if we pull back to get a wider view of the whole story of the Bible, sometimes called the meta-narrative, um, there's like four elements of that, like creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Um, this section of Exodus in Exodus 32 um, would definitely be categorized as fall. Um, we see the people's sin and God's response to it. Um, it's interesting how this story in Exodus 32 mirrors the fall of humanity in Genesis 3. Um, so this has kind of been characterized as Israel's fall as a nation. And unfortunately, it set a pretty sad pattern of their rebellion against God. 
Um, so tonight, our main point is that Israel sinned greatly by creating and worshiping an idol. God dealt with their sin through Moses, but we also see their need for a savior. Um, we're just going to walk through this story, um, again, kind of from a literary point of view, um, just to use that as our framework. I'm not going to like go all lit teacher on you, don't worry. <laughs> um, but we're going to look um, specifically at the characters in the story. So I have a very basic outline for you. Um, first of all, it's just going to be what Israel and Aaron did. Then secondly, what Moses did. And finally, what God did. So let's start off with Israel and Aaron. And I'm just going to be reading portions of this chapter to you all as um, we go along. So let's read 1 through 6. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, Up, make gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So um, right off the bat here in um, verse 1, um, there's another kind of literary device um, of conflict that's introduced um, the people have this need, this desire. Um, they want to worship God, and they want to be led by God, but they can't see him. Um, because Moses' absence seems to be standing in the way of what they're wanting, to be able to see God. So if we remember, Moses really represented God's presence to the people. Um, he spoke God's words and laws to them. Um, he raised his staff when um, God parted the sea for them. He raised his hands um, when God gave them victory in battle. Um, and as they identify him in verse 1 here, he's the one that led them out of Egypt. He's delayed, it says. Um, so how long, if we go back and look, or we can go forward and look, it's in multiple places. Um, Moses had been on the mountain for 40 days. Is that a long time? I mean, relatively speaking, not so much. But if we knew someone that like was going on a hike and they were walking in the mountains or whatever, if they were gone for that long, we'd be pretty concerned. And then you add to the fact that they look up to the mountain that he's on and it's on fire. So they have reason to be concerned, but um, they didn't do the right thing. They came up with their own solution. Um, so they went to the second in command at the time, Aaron, 
and demanded that he make gods for them. Um, Remember, these people had just covenanted with God to obey everything that he had commanded, and they were already breaking the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments. Um, He said, no other gods but me. And he said, don't make a carved or a graven image that reduces who I am, that does not fit my character. So again, they wanted to worship God and they wanted to be led, but they wanted to do it on their own terms. And I hope that makes us just a little bit uncomfortable. Um, In verses 2 through 4, let's look at Aaron. Um, From the beginning, um, God appointed him as Moses' spokesperson. Um, But he just seemed to cave and gave the people what they wanted instead of what they needed. They needed to be reminded that God was still there. But he gave them what they wanted. Um, I'm just going to jump ahead a little bit um, to verses 21 through 23. When Moses confronted Aaron, um, Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any of you have gold, take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. So he caved, and then he wasn't exactly forthright with Moses about how it all went down either. Um, We were discussing in our group about um, the gold. Like, they had been (coughs) slaves for 400 years. Where did they get gold? If we go back and look, we see that God told them on the night that they left Egypt, ask all of your Egyptian neighbors, give me your valuables. And they did. I think they were just so ready for Israel to be gone that they were like, here. So God had given them all of this plunder. And they took their wealth and they spent it on something that was not going to give them any return. They spent it on something that was sinning against God. Um, So Aaron makes it look like the golden calf just magically appeared, just jumped out of the fire. But actually we see in verse 4 that he used a tool Mm -hmm. to carve it and to form it. And that was something that God explicitly said, don't do that. But he did. Um, I thought it was interesting, too. Um, It just made me think, why did he choose a calf? I mean, clearly it didn't just jump out of the fire. So what made him choose a calf? Um, It could have also been a bull because in other references to this story, um, it's referred to as a bull or a bull (coughs) calf, either or. Um, But... It was similar to the created gods of the peoples around them. Um, Baal was represented by a bull, and especially what the Israelites would have been familiar with was the Egyptian bull god Apis, who God had already mocked in the ten plagues. God went through and mocked all of the Egyptian gods, including this god, but they still chose 
their own way, um, and they chose what was created. And then, to top that off, they said, these are your gods, O Israel. So, again, their fall here set the pattern for idolatry and rebellion against God. If you jump ahead to 1 Kings 12, um, when the kingdom had been divided after Solomon, um, and Jeroboam in the northern kingdom, he was the first king there, um, he didn't want the people to go back to Jerusalem. So he made golden calves and set them up in two different cities in the northern kingdom. And he said the exact same words. Here are your gods, O Israel, that brought you out of Egypt. And that was the beginning of the demise of the northern kingdom um, when their king led them in that kind of idolatry. Um, if you look at verse 5, Aaron seems to be like maybe having some regrets and he's wanting to draw the people back to the Lord maybe because when he proclaimed that tomorrow is going to be a feast or a festival, first of all, that was a religious term. It wasn't just, hey, we're going to have a potluck. It was, this is a festival. And he said to the Lord, he used Yahweh. That was the name he used. So it wasn't like little g. He said a festival to Yahweh. Um, so now not only have they um, made these idols, now Aaron is trying to backpedal a little bit, maybe lessen their sin, and try to compromise with sin. Um, and the people worship Yahweh as an idol. So they've got this syncretism going on mm -hmm. that they were making sacrifices and worshiping as God called them to do, but it was their version of God, which really wasn't God at all. It was an idol. And then when we choose the ways of the world, we start becoming like the world. Um, their pagan symbol of the calf also led to pagan practices. Um, the indulging in the revelry. Um, probably all of us in some form or another have seen this displayed as like all kinds of crazy things. And I dug into it a little bit. Um, the actual words to play um, often meant just like raucous singing, but it carried the connotation of um, a sexual immorality, which would have went along with the pagan um, religions that were around them because often their religious practices involved um, sexual immorality, sexual practices. Um, so they've created this idol and they just keep looking more and more like the peoples around them, not like the people that God called them to be. So just in these first six verses, let's sum up the sins of Israel. Um, first of all, they forgot God and what he had done for them. His presence was visible to them the whole time they were in the wilderness with the cloud by day and the fire by night. Daily, they had received manna from his hand. 
and ultimately he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He had split the sea so they could walk through it. He drowned their enemies. They had forgotten all of that and they were ready to move on to something they created. Um, They broke God's commandments to have no other gods and to not make a representation of God. They looked to an idol, a created thing, as a substitute for their creator. Um, I just want to read what Psalm 106 says about this. This is one of the Psalms that recounts Israel's history. In 19 through 21, at Horeb they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glory for an image of a bull, which eats grass. They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt. So they took the glory of God and chose something that eats grass. And then finally, they indulge themselves in such a way as to be immoral and look like the peoples around them. So what does this mean for us? Likely, we don't have gold statues hanging around that we're worshiping. But do we ever forget God and what he's done? Um, There are some things that you might see in your life that might be an indicator that um, maybe you have forgotten God. Um, If complaining and bitterness are a regular part of what's in your heart or what comes out of your mouth, maybe you've forgotten what God has done for you. Um, If we're very self-sufficient or if we are looking to something in the world to satisfy us and meet our needs, maybe we have forgotten what God has done for us. So this is why um, preaching the gospel to ourselves is so important. We need to rehearse God's character and what he has done to help us remember him because we're not much different than the Israelites. We also have fickle hearts. We also forget quickly. Um, We need to see, like they wanted to see. We need to see God. And he's given us lots of ways um, through his word and his spirit in us to help us do that. Um, When we remember God and what he's done for us, it'll help us to not let idolatry rule in our lives. Um, What might idolatry look like for us? Um, Just by definition, when we substitute anything or anyone else for God, looking to it to meet our needs or satisfy us, and that we give our affections and our worship to. That is idolatry. Um, So maybe it's worshiping status or platform or influence. Um, Maybe it is keeping yourself on the throne of your heart and not God. Um, Possibly... um, unduly honoring or following celebrities. And I'm not really talking about movie stars here. I'm talking about like good Christian celebrities. Are we putting more trust in 
people than we are in God. Um, maybe work or family or kids or a desire for one of those things. Um, a better job or a family or a different family. Um, maybe entertainment or numbing ourselves. Could that be an idol in our lives? Um, maybe comfort or security. I, I just need to be safe or I just need to have what I want and be comfortable. So like tonight, I urge you, but also every day, ask God to search your heart about any idolatry and repent of it. Worshiping our one true God is so much sweeter and it's much more satisfying than any idol. Lastly, for this point, um, I think it's just good for us to ask the question, um, are we indulging in any immorality or worldly pleasures? Um, sexual sin, drunkenness, overindulgence in something? Um, because that was part of what the people were doing that grieved God. Um, if you're struggling with any of these, I just want to encourage you to not fight it alone. Um, find a trusted friend, a pastor, somebody that can listen and that can pray for you and walk with you through it. Um, when we keep our sin hidden in the dark, it becomes more of a monster. It is much harder to fight than when we bring it out into the light by sharing with someone else um, and not fighting alone. In verse 9, God gave these characters in the story a very unflattering but true description. He said, it is a stiff-necked people. It is not who we want to be. So let's look at our next character. Um, in 7 through 10, we see God telling Moses what's going on down the mountain. And um, he's describing their sin and how his wrath burned against them. We're going to talk more about his wrath in a little bit. Um, but I want to read for you um, 11 through 20. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down the mountain 
with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. So we're kind of to the climax of our story now, and the character we're looking at is Moses. So let's break down what Moses did. First of all, um, starting in verse 11, he pleaded with God to not wipe out the people. It wasn't because the people shouldn't be held accountable for their sin. And it wasn't because they were worthy of God's favor. He pleaded with God for the sake of God's glory. Moses didn't want Egypt to mock God for killing his people in the wilderness. He also reminded God of his covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel about descendants and about inheriting the promised land. And next, even though he had just implored God to turn from his anger, um, Moses reacted in anger when he saw the idol and the revelry. He broke the tablets that God had written the covenant on. And this gives us a picture of the broken covenant because of the Israelites' sin. He brought judgment on the people when he destroyed their idol and made them drink the contaminated water. And this gives us a picture of how sin pollutes our lives. And he confronted Aaron about bringing sin upon the people when he went along with their rebellion instead of leading them. And again, this is a reminder that we can't compromise with sin. In verses 25 through 29, Moses brings further judgment on the people for their idolatry, and he enlists the help of the Levites. He calls whoever is on the Lord's side. So just as Moses was for God's glory when he was interceding for the people um, that God would turn from his wrath, here he is for God's holiness. Um, in chapter 19, God had called Israel a holy nation, and now they were making a mockery of that and acting like the nations around them. They were no longer being set apart. And because of that, again, God's glory was at stake. And that's what Moses was after, was God's glory. Um, this part of the story, where 3,000 brothers, sons, friends were killed, seems really harsh to us. Like, it's hard to read. Um, but it makes it clear that this was a very serious rebellion. It was a very serious offense to God. 
Um, and if we picture 3,000 bodies laying there, it gives us a picture of how sin leads to death. And we see that all through scripture, that sin leads to death. Finally, towards the end of our passage, we see Moses go back up the mountain to the Lord to see if he can make atonement for their sin. He's interceding for them again, for God to forgive them. So let's back up a little bit. Let's define atonement. What is that? Um, Just basic definition. It's a satisfaction, a reparation, or a covering of an offense. Specifically, it's reconciliation between a sinful people and a holy God, which is exactly what the Israelites needed. Often it was made by a sacrifice that usually involved blood. Not always, but usually. Um, In this final action of Moses in the story, we see a type of Christ, a foreshadowing. Um, In verse 32, But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. So Moses is saying, if you're not going to forgive your people, then just please take me out of your book. In our group, we kind of talked about what that book is. Um, Think book of life. And again, we can trace that all through um, the Bible, um, all the way up to Revelation. But it's God's record, God's knowledge of his people, his elect, those that he gives life to. So basically, book of life. Moses says, if they're not going to be forgiven, let me die. That's not what God did. And we're going to be studying Hebrews this summer. If we look ahead to Hebrews, we can see that Jesus is the better Moses. For a lot of reasons, but Jesus did die so the people could be forgiven. He is the one that made that ultimate atonement for our sins. Moses did not complete that, Mm -hmm. but Jesus did. Mm -hmm. So looking at Moses' actions in the story, what can we learn? Um, And I think this is something that was kind of new to me, that stood out to me. Um, about how important um, intercession was. Um, We can intercede for others, for God to have compassion and mercy on others in their need, whether it's a physical need or the need for salvation. We can be for God's glory by pursuing holiness. As Moses and the Levites were on the Lord's side, and killed many who committed this grievous sin, we need to be killing sin in our own life. Um, And right here, I just want to pause. We're going to take like a little bunny trail here um, out of Exodus just for a minute because for me, it's very frustrating for a teacher to tell me, you need to do this 
without telling me how to do it, without giving me some practical handles. So I just want to take a couple of minutes and talk about killing sin. Um, This um, quote is from a message that I heard about five years ago that impacted me so much. Like, I still, like, repeat these things. Um, It says, the battle is within, daily I must fight. Death comes from sin, killed only by Christ's might. Um, So, first of all, when we're facing sin, we have to recognize that it is a battle. Paul didn't say, fight the good fight of faith for no reason. Um, We have been made new. We have been set free. And we have to believe that truth, that we actually are free. But we are still in the flesh. And so that means that we will be battling sin. Um, But first of all, we need to believe that we are not overcome by our sin. Christ has overcome our sin. Um, Just very practically, don't exercise sin. Paul talks about not giving the members of our body to sinful practices. Um, If you kind of think about exercise, if you don't exercise, your muscles are going to atrophy. That's what we want sin to do in our lives. Just let it atrophy. But in exchange for that, we have to exercise godliness by pursuing God, by um, serving him, by worshiping him. Um, But I think it's really important at this point that we say this is not something that we produce. We don't have the power to do this. Um, We have to walk in the spirit. And Romans 8, Galatians 5, Those are some big passages that really talk about walking in the Spirit. Um, But it is not our power that helps us exercise godliness and not exercise sin. It is the power of the Spirit in us. Um, We also need to keep ourselves in the current of God's grace. And we do that by the habits of grace. Some call them spiritual disciplines. Um, But being in the Word, getting to know God, praying, walking in community with people, um, the things that are going to continue to point us to God and help us to know Him. And honestly, we just have to pray to have the right desires, to pray to not want to sin, because that desire really only comes from Jesus. We can't muster up that desire either. Um, So we need to be loving and delighting in Jesus because when that becomes greater than sin and temptation, that's when we'll overcome it. So it will eclipse um, sin and temptation, our delight and our love for Jesus. And um, there's just an acronym that I found very useful. I didn't come up with this, so I'm not giving you something that is original for me. But um, it's Eclipse. Um, First of all, expose the lie of sin and temptation. It's not going to give you what you want. 
claim a promise from the word. And again, we have to be in the word to know what the promises are. That he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. That we have been made new. That sin does not have to reign in our bodies. That anger doesn't produce the righteous life that God desires. Um, All kinds of promises that we can claim. Um, We need to live by faith, which means that we're acting on the promise and not on our feelings. We need to ingest the word so that we're filled with that and not with the things of the world. And kind of like I said earlier, we need to pray for help to have the right desires and to have the strength to overcome sin. This will help us shun future temptation. That's the S. And then we need to engage others um, by seeking help, accountability, kind of like I talked about earlier. Um, it is easier to fight sin when we're not fighting it alone. God gives us everything that we need for life and godliness, and he helps us to live a godly life, to kill sin. So I just wanted to, like, just... And these are all based in God's word. Give you just some practical handles. So it's not just, well, do this, good luck. You know, (laughs) that frustrates me when I don't have a practical handle. So anyway, now we're going to jump back into Exodus. Um, And um, just the final point um, for this part with Moses Um, We just need to recognize our need for a savior. Moses' attempt at making making atonement for the people's sin was incomplete. But Jesus can and does reconcile us to our holy God because he was the perfect sacrifice. So this brings us to the most important character in the story, Um, God, or Yahweh, or the Lord. Um, I'm just going to read a couple of verses um, that talk about what God did. Um, Verse 14, And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. And then the last verses in this chapter, But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now, go, Lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. So let's talk about God's wrath against his people. Um, It says it burned hot um, in verses 9 and 10. But his wrath was righteous. It wasn't just that he was angry. His wrath was righteous because the Israelites had broken his commandments and broken covenant with him. 
And it was akin to committing adultery against him. Um, If you look through, especially like the prophets, when they're calling out the sin of the Israelites, which often involved idolatry, God called it adultery. He called it prostitution. They were leaving the one that loved them the most and settling for something else. And so his wrath was righteous. God is holy, and he calls his people to be holy. And he is just, which means that sin must be punished, or else he wouldn't be just. And he was ready to do that if Moses had not interceded for them. Um, I don't know about you guys, but this section really brought some hard questions to my mind. Um, this 11 through 14, where it was talking about God's wrath. Um, Since God is a covenant-making, promise-keeping God, was he really going to forget the covenant he made with Abraham and with his descendants? Um, So I wasn't really sure how to answer that. I did some studying. Um, So... I'm not sure that I have an answer for you, but here are just a couple of things that I found. Um, He was saying that he was going to transfer that promise to Moses. Wipe out all these people, and then you would be the leader of this great nation that are my people. And Moses was an Abraham, or a descendant of Abraham. So, Technically, that didn't completely nullify it. Um, But then some other thought on that that I found um, was that God's wrath here and wanting to wipe out the people and forget the covenant um, served as a warning to the people that he would reject them. And that eventually happened. Um, And it also served to stir Moses Um, to intercede for them. And again, we kind of talked about this already, but looking at it more from the standpoint of God's sovereignty, um, in the Exodus for You book, I don't know if any of you guys are following along reading this, but it had a really good quote um, about prayer and God's sovereignty in this section. So I just want to read that to you. God hears the prayer of Moses and relents in verse 14. So this prayer changes the course of history. It makes a difference. It means Israel has a future. There is an element of mystery here, the mystery of God's sovereignty. For elsewhere, the Bible is clear that God does not change his mind. Um, 1 Samuel 15, for example. Perhaps the best way to look at this is that since God is in charge of all things, he's in charge of our prayers. We freely choose to pray what God has freely chosen we should, and God freely chooses to respond to the prayers he has ordained we should say. So God intends our prayers to be the means by which he changes the world. He decides to use our prayer to change his decisions. So that just helped me a little bit in wrestling with the sovereignty of God and how that works in prayer. Um, 
And it just leads me to think that we need to be a praying people. God uses that. Even when it's hard for us to wrap our brains around how that works, uh, God uses prayer. And clearly it changed history for Israel. Um, My other hard question from the section was about God changing his mind. Because like I just read, there are multiple places where it says that God doesn't change. God doesn't change his mind. He's not like a man. But verse 14 says, and the Lord relented. He didn't do what he said he was going to do. So as I was studying, I started following all the cross-references that are connected um, to verse 14. And almost all of them talk about the Lord relenting, and three things happened. Someone prayed. Someone repented, and God had compassion on them. Um, This just moved me to tears, that God's compassion was stirred by prayer and by repentance. And just the fact that God was compassionate. And we see that multiple times through the Old Testament um, when... He delayed Hezekiah's punishment when he didn't wipe out the Ninevites, much to Jonah's chagrin. Um, The Lord relented when the people repented, and I did not mean for that to rhyme. (laughs) So Habakkuk 3.2 has a great prayer that I think we should echo. He says, in wrath... Remember mercy. Because God does relent. He is merciful. So how does God answer Moses' plea to forgive them? Or blot him out? Um, 33 and 34. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. So he will punish the sin. We see that God is just. He's only going to blot out those who have sinned against him. Did any of them keep his law? No, not at this point, and not throughout Israel's history. They couldn't keep his law. But it's also us. We all sin. We all fall short of his glory. And we all deserve to be destroyed for our sin. And he did punish them. He did visit his sin upon them by sending the plague. Um, We were kind of talking in our small group that actually that was kind of merciful too, that he didn't just wipe out the whole lot of them, that only 3,000 died and he only sent a plague. Um, So... He did deal with their sin. He punished them. But in this, we can also see God's mercy. When Moses interceded for the people, he relented. He told Moses, go ahead and lead them into the promised land. In his mercy, God delayed the ultimate punishment until he visited all of his wrath on his own son on the cross.
Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's echoing the words that God said that his wrath burned hot, that we were objects of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So we don't see the full picture of God's mercy here. We do see punishment. We do see that God is being just. But if we follow it all through to the end, we see the ultimate mercy that God had through Jesus, that Jesus was the one to take God's wrath. Jesus was the one that was punished for all of our sin. So, in conclusion, I just want to call us to avoid spiritual adultery, which is what it was called, which is what they did, by getting rid of any idols in our lives. We need to remember what God has done for us. He sent his son to make complete atonement for all of our sins, and he gives us his spirit so we can live the life that he calls us to. He has called us his holy people, just like he called Israel his holy people, and we're loved. So as Moses told Israel at the end of his life, at the end of his life, Moses' life, um, in what is known as the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, I'm going to read that for you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So don't exchange God's glory for a lesser thing. Let's pray.